Hello, welcome to Nature Ono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode two of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest for this episode is Dr. Jacobina K. Arch, Associate Professor of History at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Dr. Arch is author of the 2018 monograph, Bringing Whales Ashore, Oceans and the Environment of Early Modern Japan, a fascinating account of the environmental history of whaling in Japan's early modern era, before the Meiji Restoration of 1868, that is often considered the start of Japan's modern era. One aim of the book is to challenge claims that Japan holds an ancient tradition of whaling comparable to Aboriginal groups who have received exemption from whaling restrictions for having such traditions. But it does more than this, too. It offers readers what Arch calls in the first chapter a whale's eye view of Japan and attempts to tell a history from the whale's perspective. The book also narrates how whales occupied the cultural imagination of early modern Japan and how whale products found their way ashore, hence the book's title, and were put to a variety of uses. But perhaps the most theoretically exciting intervention Arch makes is to argue, as I quoted in episode one of this podcast, that, quote, Japan's island nature needs to be seen as a collection of islands whose boundaries are thus not closed at all, because they must be drawn somewhere in the waters that connect those islands to each other and to the Pacific Ocean as a whole, end quote. Arch's history of Japan is thus a history of oceanic Japan. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jacobina K. Arch. So again, thank you so much for being here um, and talking with me today. Um, And I actually want to begin by reading a passage uh, from the introduction to your book, Bringing Whales Ashore. And so you say this, yeah, in in the introduction. You say, quote, it's puzzling given the extensive coastline of Japan with its four main islands and thousands of lesser islands that so little attention has been paid to the influence of the sea in Japanese history. And then a little bit later you continue, quote, while the study of Japan in fields like archaeology, folklore studies, and cultural anthropology um, have begun to turn to the world of the ocean, it has been much more difficult to get historians of Japan to consider topics beyond rice-centered agricultural society, end quote. And so I'm wondering, uh, to start, if you could just say a little bit about why you think this might be the case, um, and whether or not you think maybe the tide is turning on this a little bit. Yeah, um, I think that some of it is based on the fact that the structure of understanding how to record history within Japan was borrowed from China, which is very focused on an agricultural model. And so if you're writing official histories within the periods of Japanese history, then they focus on things that are not outside of the terrestrial realm as much. I mean, a few things may show up here and there, but the the framing really forces a kind of attention away from the shores um, simply because they borrowed it from a country which has much less shore compared to the interior area. Uh, And so I think that's part of it. Um, I think another part of it is the fact that overall, globally, we have become less connected to the ocean than we used to be. 
Um, the number of people who work on the water, whether that's actually on ships or whether it's on shore as longshoremen or other kinds of things in ports on the seashore uh, has declined a lot with mechanization. You just need fewer crews. Um, you need fewer people on shore moving cargo. Um, and so the economies have, have shifted. People tend to travel more by plane or by cars. And so we in general don't pay as much attention to the ocean. It doesn't have as much of an impact. And this is true in many places, not just Japan. But it is something that I noticed when I went to Japan um, that there really isn't easy access to the shore uh, in many places. They've put up the, the tetrapod, uh, you know, breakwaters and, and other, you know, concretized seashore. There still are beaches, but it's, it's not as inviting to, to go down to the beach as in other places that I've been. Sure. And so yeah. it's just less present for people, right? And so you don't think to put it back in when the records are all focused on things that are not as oceanic, right? I think that's that's my best explanation for it. But it is, as I wrote in the introduction, somewhat puzzling <laughs> that there isn't more of a presence of the ocean um, and that there are people uh, who not only uh, within Japan, um, but also now people who study Japan, there are more of us who are really thinking about this problem and are, are starting to study the, the oceanic components of Japanese history and not just the terrestrial components. So I, I do think this is changing, but there was a, a kind of a long time lag before the field of history took this up in comparison to some of the other kinds of places that people would ask this question or would focus on the ocean, so. Right, right, I'm thinking about this um, conference that was held uh, in May, right, of, of this year, 2020. I mean, it was virtual, uh, mm -hmm. as most things are right now, but it was uh, water, waterways, and seas in modern Japan, right? And this was, I, I was able to attend some of the conference virtually, but uh, mm -hmm. seemed to be pretty focused, right, at kind of historical accounting of, of waterways right in, in, from a variety of different angles. Yes and um, there's also there have been a couple of conferences in the past couple of years that have been um, thinking about oceanic Japan putting together uh, people's different uh, projects on that that's I don't know when exactly the book that's coming out of that will come out but relatively soon I, that was part of that uh, and, and it's really exciting to see the the many different ways that people are thinking about Japan's oceans and Japan in the ocean, uh, right, right. but it's really pretty recent. Right. And I guess, you know, part of you, what, what um, interests me so much about your book uh, and, you know, this sort of turn to the ocean, right, within uh, Japanese studies, um, you know, your book calls for this reassessing of the importance of the ocean. Um, and, and that seems to really align with this more general trend towards a blue humanities, um, mm. right? And when we talk about the blue humanities, uh, one of the works that's often cited is Stephen Mensa's 2009 essay uh, toward a blue cultural studies, right? And so in that essay, he argues for a, a maritime humanities that speaks to, in his words, quote, a series of modern discourses, including globalization, post-colonialism, environmentalism, eco-criticism, and the history of science and technology, end quote, right? So all these different um, types of discourses that can kind of fall under this you know, rubric of the maritime humanities. Mm -hmm. Do you see your work as kind of participating in this larger field outside of just the study of Japan? Yeah, I hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do feel like there's 
there's a lot of uh, strangely siloed little places where people have been thinking about the oceans and we're just now, I think, starting to find all those silos and try to bring it together a little better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things like um, there are maritime historians, but they're but they're focused very specifically on particular questions that seem to get very little interest outside of the set of people who do maritime history or naval history, right? And that there's also um, people who are studying other types of maritime humanities uh, mm. or blue humanities who we might not know to look for in each of our different fields that I think, I hope at least we're starting to cross some of those uh, division boundaries um, and instead make them uh, more of an inspiration for um, how we might want to do, you know, I'm not necessarily going to do the same kind of thing as other um, disciplines in the humanities, but their work can be really inspiring for the kinds of questions I might want to ask after seeing what they have done. And so I do think that the more we can find a way to have a conversation between the different kinds of questions and different kinds of perspectives that people have on the oceans, the more interesting everything that comes out of our work <laughs> is, is going to be. Right. And I think that this is also related to the attempts to to create a Pacific world or, or Pacific studies kind of field. Um, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure where that's going and I'm not sure that that's ever going to be quite as strong as the Atlantic world idea. But I think that the drive is very similar in that we, we want to see what happens if we refocus and, and take the ocean as a connecting space for our ideas as well as for some of the other things that you know, in, in maritime studies, it was just a connecting space as in there were shipping routes. And we said, where did where did this country move to that place? And and it's much more interesting to see it in a multiple perspective uh, where you can actually start inspiring other questions and think about it from different depths. I mean, there's also people who are saying, well, what happens if you look not just on the surface? What about the deep sea exploration? What about um, how does that connect into space exploration, right? And, and mm. so you just, you get really interesting questions, I think, when you start doing that interdisciplinary kind of work. And as an environmental historian, I feel like we often do interdisciplinary work because we're trying to figure out ways to get sources that are just not entirely human written things. Um, but I do think there's plenty more work that could be done to tie this together and to let people know what else is out there. It's, it's just hard to find sometimes. And so when you get things that people say, oh, look, all of you are doing this, you know, conferences or, or other things, it's really great to have those new conversations. And I'm glad you brought up this question of, of sources, right? Um, this is one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, your book, obviously because it's dealing with whaling, right? Um, and whaling has become such a hot button issue internationally, right? I imagine that, you know, a number of, the, of your readers come to this book um, to learn about the history of whaling in early modern Japan. But what I find really fascinating is that your first chapter in a way kind of resists that, you know, just easy into uh, dealing with the history of whaling, right? And so this first chapter, which is called Seeing from the Sea, A Whale's Eye View of Japan, 
really focuses in on the whales themselves, right? And it attempts to, te uh, to tell this non-human history and to recount what types of whales populated Japan's seas um, before the advent of whaling. But you remark um, on the difficulty of telling this history without relying on historical whaling records, right? And so I'm wondering if you feel like environmental histories in general, right? Ones that do try to focus on non-human animals or plants, in some way kind of inevitably end up in this kind of bind, right? Having to rely on human record to tell non-human histories. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, we are telling human histories even when we're adding in the non-human aspects of those histories mm. because we are people and we are talking to other people. Right. So I think that there is a, there is always going to be some aspect of um, people or involved in creating the sources, whether that's in the whaling records that help us figure out what might've been going on with whales or whether that's looking at scientific data for the, you know, the paleo biology of a particular space or, um, you know, pollen records that tell us something about climate. Right. Those, those still have humans who collected that data and interpreted it, right? So um, I do think that you don't wanna go too far in trying to avoid human sources in order to get at these other stories because I don't think that's possible, but I think it's it's useful to be aware of where we are making interpretations, right. right? Of the fact that I could just say, you know, I could have written that chapter saying, here's exactly what species were there, and here's what whales were thinking, and um, you know, extrapolate wildly or less, depending <laughs> on how many sources I could find, and not right. mention, by the way, these are whaling sources, so clearly there's a particular kind of uh, perspective here, mm -hmm. but that wouldn't really let people interpret how closely they thought I might have gotten to that whale's perspective, right? We're, we're all going to have really different interpretations of things that are human, never mind non-human. So I like to make sure that I show where my, pos my possible biases and my sources' possible biases are so that readers can figure out on their own how much it seems to be congruent with other stuff they know or trustworthy or, or what have you. Um, and it's hard as someone who is going to have this read by others and judged you, it's hard for us to say, well, I might not be right here. Um, but I think especially when you're using non-human sources or filtered through human non-human sources, right. um, that highlighting that makes it just much more truthful and much more um, interesting too, just to be able to say, this is one guess, what's yours? Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you have any other advice? <laughs> you know, I, I imagine that this book is going to inspire a lot of, you know, younger researchers, um, graduate students to, to, you know, kind of look for these other histories, right? These histories that are both of human and the non-human. Um, do you have any sort of general advice about how to navigate that you know, this question of, of resources, you said, you know, to, to really foreground it. Um, is, is there anything else you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the other things that was really helpful for me was being very open to finding information in unexpected places, mm -hmm. right? Um, whether that's 
uh, looking at things that are published by people in other disciplines, um, or whether that's looking for, um, you know, just keeping an eye out for pictures of whales and saying, oh, wait, what's happening there? Mm. Uh, and, and tracking things down in, you know, not just looking in archives. Most of what I used wasn't in a specific archive, right? Mm, okay. um, there were things in little right. tiny local museums. There were things in prefectural libraries and, you know, just scattered around in a lot of places. And so, a lot of my research was just um, looking around, uh, seeing, you know, I'm not sure where I will find information on what the whale's perspective might be. Let's just see what's out there. Um, and a lot of a lot of what I used for the apart from the whaling records for the background of what might have been going on with the whales was biology. I, I have a background in uh, biology. I have a um, actually a master's and it was studying whale behavior. So I knew where to find that very easily. Um, right. I don't think you have to have a second degree in order to be able to find this stuff, but um, it certainly would not hurt to ask colleagues in other fields uh, who, who maybe study what you're studying from a different perspective. So where is the, you know, where is the basic information about whale migration routes? Uh, if you if you don't already know where to find that, um, or, you know, how do geologists study this particular thing that I am also interested in, in a very different way? Maybe you can find that by doing library searches, but it's also, I think a lot of it is um, talking to people who have different perspectives and seeing what kinds of sources they have and thinking about how is this source maybe useful for me if I read it differently? Or um, is there something that if I tell a geologist, I'm looking for this kind of thing, but these sources that I've found only cover this, you can at least find out if other geologists have answered the thing you're missing or if you need to look somewhere else, right? Maybe that's a totally different field and you need to um, go ask someone else. But I definitely think being open to looking around for places that you would not expect to find information is what helped me the most. Uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, about, you know, this idea of a kind of Pacific studies, right? Mm. And I think that's really fascinating to think about with your work because you are uh, looking at early modern Japan, at least from this book, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, one of the reasons that you mention in Bringing Whales Ashore um, for the importance of reconsidering the ocean in Japanese history is because it can help us reframe uh, preconceived notions that we have about sakoku, right? Or this mm -hmm. isolationist policy that, um, you know, I, it, it, I'm just thinking of my own undergraduate students who come in with this preconceived notion of a, you know, completely sealed off Japan that's, you know, then, uh, you know, Perry arrives and all of a sudden everything is so different. But, you know, I think your book challenges that, right? And, and so I'm, I'm wondering how you see um, early modern Japanese history differently once we factor in the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how strong the idea of Sakuku still is, despite 30 or 40 years worth of people saying, <laughs> no, it really wasn't that close. Right. Um, but I do think it still, it still looms over us in the, the kinds of assumptions we make about what to look for, what kind of questions to ask. Mm. Um, and and we, we, even if we don't think it was that closed, we don't think that 
the Pacific world might be really particularly important until people cross it in other ships and, and you know, knock on the doors and so forth. Um, but I think one of the things I found as I was doing this work is that we really do need to remember how interconnected ocean spaces are. Right? It's not just people coming on ships that are influencing what's going on. And one of the things that's really fascinating about Japan in any period is how much influence the Kuroshio current has mm. on how livable Japan is, right? right? That that current brings not just the, the warmth that comes with it, the way that the Gulf Stream mitigates climate in, in the Atlantic, but it also brings so much uh, nutrient rich, you know, fish and um, other kinds of oceanic species up to Japan and, and it makes the coastal waters so rich for fishing um, and, and for other things that, you know, if it's not human fishing, but the other animals that are eating things there. And, uh, and so it just really reshaped my perspective of where my sort of mental map of where Japan is, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not just islands um, that, you know, in some cases, the way people describe the Japanese islands um, it almost seems like they could be floating in outer space, right? <laughs> and right. that this, these alien spaceships come in and open it up. <laughs> um, and that this, if you, if you think about the ocean, not as just a, a, a homogeneous water, uh, but instead as a, a rich changing ecosystem of its own with all these different features of different currents and uh, different ecosystems that interlap or um, overlap, interlace, something like that. Mm. Um, and so then you start thinking about this as an embedded place mm. that things like the rise of these whaling groups or any of the other specialized fisheries of the Tokugawa, um, things like the importance of the inland sea, um, those become much clearer because you're seeing it not just as a a picture on a map where the ocean space is just the blank or the blue outside, but as having features, right? And, and of tying those features into the space that humans are dealing with, even if they're not traveling very far outside of a certain, you know, inside of shore or, or some other measure like that. You know, things are coming through from the ocean. Whales are migrating along the shore. Um, you know, there are seabird migrations that come across the country. Um, and it just, it makes a very rich picture that I think I was missing when I first started studying Japanese history. I just wasn't thinking about those interconnections. And it, it made some things not make sense. Like, so why would suddenly they have whaling, right? Well, it's not really suddenly. Um, it, it's linked into all of these other things that are happening. And mm -hmm. so um, personally, it's, I don't know whether it takes that level of, of diving into sources and really focusing on these waters to, to make that kind of picture. But I hope that, um, by writing this book or for having other research like this out there that it's easier for people to realize that without having to go through the many years worth of research that I did before this mental picture changed for me. Um, and the more people see Japan as connected into this larger space, I think the richer our histories are going to be. So that's my hope.
That's great. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to have you here um, as our first guest for this season, right? This season's about oceanic Japan. Um, it's because there's there's another passage in your book that was really sort of the starting point for me personally, right? And really inspired me to pursue uh, Japan's relationship to the ocean as the theme for this season of the podcast. So um, I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Um, and this is also from the introduction. And you say, quote, while the boundaries of one single island can indeed enclose and limit a terrestrial system, Japan's island nature needs to be seen as a collection of islands whose boundaries are thus not closed at all because they must be drawn somewhere in the waters that connect those islands to each other and to the Pacific Ocean as a whole, end quote. And so obviously this you know, gets back to what we were just talking about, um, but I'm wondering, you know, this, this sort of thinking seems to have really, really, um, profound implications uh, for challenging, you know, the nation state, the study of the nation state, right, the kind of paradigm of area studies in general as an academic discipline. Do you see it that big, right? Is, is it something that can, can, can really extend that far for you? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it does hold that promise. I, mm -hmm. I feel a little awkward about saying that it definitely could expand out that large because I certainly am still just <laughs> focusing on Japan. Sure. Um, you know, I, I'm framing this as uh, a national study in many mm -hmm. ways. Uh, and a lot of that is because of the language um, issue, right? That the sources mm -hmm. that I'm looking at are constrained within a particular language, which happens to be constrained within a particular nation. And so that, that aspect of historical study, I think is, a very difficult one to break out of, right? If yeah. you want to look at East Asia as a region, you've got to have at least three different languages, right. um, probably more. <laughs> right. And so it becomes quite difficult to expand beyond at least the linguistic boundaries. But I do think it's worthwhile trying, or at least remembering that it's not just this one place, right? So what happens if, if you focus on this particular collection of islands, which is a modern nation state, and remember that it's got connections to other places. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it doesn't change everything, but I think it's a worthwhile thought experiment to broaden out as much as you can. And it may mean that as you expand out, you realize, oh, and now I need to go talk to somebody who speaks Korean or uh, you know, some other aspect of it. But I, I also think it's potentially quite promising for more collaboration. Mm. I do find that one of the problems with the way that history works is that we tend to sit down by ourselves with a bunch of sources and write things and occasionally at conferences get together and talk about it. But mm -hmm. it's very difficult, at least within the framework of US historians work to do collaborative kinds of projects. Mm -hmm. And there are, I mean, I've talked to some people in, in Europe and other places where collaboration is much more uh, encouraged and, right, and the structure right. of the academy works differently. Uh, but I do think that um, it's worth pushing ourselves to see where we need to talk to other people because even if you did have a command of all of those languages, uh, getting that outside perspective can be so influential in really helping you figure out what you want to say and making sure that it makes sense. Uh, and just, it makes a much richer project for anyone to be able to communicate with others and see, is, is this hitting what I thought it was or is there something that I forgot about or, or anything like that. And so I hope that by, by creating a kind of 
push outwards, even if it's not a completely expansive change of view, that it might lead to that kind of broader conversation um, and more opportunities to, to work together with people, or at least to talk more together with people before finalizing projects and saying, oh, the book is done. Okay, now what's the next thing? Right. Well, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, obviously language is a big part of this, right? Um, but, you know, even even thinking about bringing whales ashore, this book as a, a kind of national history, it's still, like you said, pushing the borders of Japan out, mm -hmm. right, into the sea. And because of that, there's some really, really interesting moments in this book. Um, and I want to ask you about one specific claim, uh, and this is from your third chapter, right? And so this, uh, this chapter is called Moving Whales from Coast to Mountains, the Circulation and Use of Whale Products. And this is a fascinating chapter. Um, you know, you detail all the different ways in which whales, once they were caught, they were consumed, you know, for meat, but for other purposes as well, uh, including agricultural purposes, right? And so thinking about the kind of network in which whales moved throughout the land as well, right? But you make this really powerful claim um, that, that I've been kind of, you know, stuck thinking about. Um, and so you write this, quote, one of the major colonization or expansion projects of early modern Japan was out into the coastal waters that brought nutrients from throughout the Pacific, end quote. Um, so my question is whether the argument being made here is, you know, something like whaling itself, right? The practice of whaling, we can see this as a kind of colonial endeavor. Is that the, the implication here? That's part of it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think that it it is a colonial endeavor in different places at different times. Um, American whaling was very colonial mm. um, and it's not quite at that level in Tokugawa Japan in that it doesn't push people to new land spaces that they then want to influence and, and manage under some particular control, whether that's fully governmental or some other kind of claim that they just have people there and they come in and, and influence local life. Um, but I do think that it is colonial in attitude, mm. right, in, in claiming a space that happens to be an ocean space. So people aren't sticking a flag in and putting a house up there, but it's taking over the resources in that space. It's making use of that area for the people who are nearby. And it does lead to some conflict with others who are making use of those whales as resources. And so in that sense, I mean, empire in one definition is all about natural resources, sure, right? Sure. You know, colonial claims are for the things you can get from those colonies and extract from those colonies. And this is extracting not from another human geographic claim, but still extracting and allowing for people to do things back in the center differently than they could without those resources, right? And so it doesn't, it doesn't make Japan suddenly an empire to have whale resources, but it does add to the economic power. Um, it adds to the possibilities that people have with these different products. Um, and it's part, it's not just the whaling, right? I mean, if it were just whaling, I don't think you could really say it was completely doing this. But I think that all of the specialized marine harvests and the trade with the Ainu, which is also focused on marine products and, and the push 
uh, to make that a colonial kind of relationship, you know, those are all connected together. Right, right. Right. And so seeing this space as a place that the Japanese people should be able to harvest things from, and it's ours in that sense, I think is very much in line with other kinds of colonial projects, even though it's not exactly colonial. And, and one of the one of the things that got me thinking about it that way is not actually necessarily the Tokugawa part of it, mm -hmm. but in thinking about the modern Japanese mm. colonization of fisheries, right? right? The, the ways that the Japanese presence in other areas of the world and other types of fisheries has been so important in the 20th century and, and into the 21st. And so that that got me thinking, well, okay, so is this really new? Probably not entirely. Where, where does this come from, right? What is the impetus that gets people going out into the ocean, especially in that sort of weird thing where somehow they're closed and yet they're leaving, <laughs> even though they're not supposed to be leaving, right? right. I mean, I think the Tokugawa is really fascinating because the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it wasn't so much that they were sort of kept within the terrestrial boundaries of Japan by the Sakoku edicts, um, but rather that they were kept within a nearer shore area, mm. right? So they were not crossing the oceans usually, except by accident. <laughs> and <laughs> so they were, you know, they were claiming a smaller space of the ocean as a place where they we're supposed to be, or we're supposed to um, find useful things in, or things like that. But that they were making, I think, because they because they pulled into these coastal waters. I feel like, in some ways, they were making a stronger claim to the ocean as their waters. Mm. And then that translates, I think, very well into pushing those outwards as our waters just get bigger and bigger and become the broader Japanese empire. Right. Uh, and so that's an interesting process, which I think does come out of a shift in perspective as far as the resources and who has claim over them from the Tokugawa period. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to I want to shift a little bit uh, to talk about something from your your fifth chapter. Right. And so in the fifth chapter of your book, you discuss questions of religion and spirituality in relation to whales and the death of whales, right, through whaling in particular. Um, and so you write about whale graves and the practice of kuyo, right, or these Buddhist memorial rites for whales. And, you know, we talked earlier about how entrenched this, this notion of, um, you know, early modern isolationist policy is uh, in people's minds to this day. And I feel like one of the other really entrenched kind of myths, right, that um, students will often come to class with uh, is this idea about Japan having this very rich, unique tradition of viewing the natural world in a very harmonious way, right, this unique relationship to the natural environment. Um, you know, as somebody who, who teaches about Japan and the environment, this can be a really challenging myth to dispel. Uh, but I feel like, you know, 
memorial rites for whales, um, or a, you know, even a more sort of generalized conception of Shinto as a natural religion, right? These are parts of the reasons why I think this idea still tends to persist. But you, you know, you argue very clearly in your chapter that we we shouldn't understand um, religious memorialization of whales as a kind of evidence, right, for this more respectful attitude towards nature. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's the case? Yeah, I mean, it's it is a difficult kind of assumption if you if you look at a place that has some form of animistic relationship with uh, their various aspects of the natural world, then it just mm -hmm. we assume they have to have respect for those spaces that they have seen as sacred. And I don't want to say that there's no presence of that at all in Japan. I do think that that Shinto does influence the kind of perceptions that people have of the value of the natural world. Um, but I think that when I when I started looking into what exactly um, what exactly the kind of uh, direct actions and and per, the, the discussion of so what does this mean and why do we care about mm -hmm. these dead whales and how do we care about them? Um, I found that it was a lot less about caring about the whales in and of themselves, which is what you would expect if you say that they're very close to nature and that they respect nature for its own purposes, right? Right. And so it's there is there is a an acknowledgement of the importance of whales and and the fact that their lives and their deaths matter. Uh, but at the same time, that acknowledgement is in part to assuage the guilt of the people who are killing them, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's based on understanding these beings in a human framework, which is, I think, useful to think about and is really fascinating. And it's something that maybe we should talk about when we think about Japan's relationship to nature is, you know, how are they interpreting the, the space the divisions between the non-human and the human, it, those divisions are different. And mm. there's something interesting going on there, but that's not what the conversation usually focuses on. Usually it says, oh, they're, they're respectful of nature, they're close to nature. Um, and I think that you can, you can talk about relationships with nature without it being purely exploitative or purely respectful, right. right? That there's there's somewhere in the middle and, and there's differences of how you get to the middle are what I think are really fascinating. And I feel like the Japanese relationship with the death of whales reflects um, the way that the whales are considered to belong to a human afterlife does show that they're thinking differently about their relationship to, to nature, right? That nature is something different than just humans and then nature is everything else. Um, but it's often in service of an understanding of the world in human terms, sure. right? And right. that's something that I think a lot of students get confused about. They think, oh, well, you know, if there's a kami in a tree, then you're respecting the tree. Um, but if you're treating that, that tree like a human, <laughs> maybe you're not respecting the tree. I don't know what that is, right? That's something yeah. different that we need to talk about. Right. And I think that in, in many of the conversations I've had about this uh, material, one of the things that has, uh, really come clear to me at least and hopefully to the people I'm talking to uh, has been the fact that you can talk about an embeddedness in the natural world which is still manipulative 
Mm. Right? right? And that's what I see in Japan, right? If you think about Japan as, as having a close tie to the natural world, it's usually talked about in things like um, the poetry having, you know, focusing on the seasons and aspects of, of you know, trees and flowers and birds and things. Sure. Um, and, and, and thinking about, you know, the gardens and, and other spaces, but they're all, those are all very manufactured spaces, mm -hmm. right? It's not about, um, walking out into the mountains and just seeing what's there. It's about going into a garden and appreciating how carefully curated and beautiful that natural space is. Right. But it, it's not natural the way that um, Americans would think of natural, right. right? And that's the part where I think the, the difficulty comes in, you know, closest to nature in, in having an awareness of other non-human uh, beings and, um, you know, the, the ecosystem that you are in, uh, is not necessarily the same thing as treating it as wilderness, right? Right. Which my students always want to assume nature means wilderness, right? And that's not true in Japan. Most of right. Japan is not wilderness, right? But they can have an awareness of a particular aspect of it's not all just concrete, right? That there are there are gardens and an awareness of you know the cherry tree blooming and other kinds of of rituals of understanding the passage of time in, in the natural space and rituals of understanding the passage of life in in these um, rituals they have for for well death and so. It's not, uh, it's not what people would assume when they hear about Japan's closeness to nature. And that's why I think it's fascinating because there's another closeness there that we forget about that I wanna focus on um, that maybe helps us rethink our own relationships to nature, whatever nature is, because nature of course is hard to define. Um, people make lots of assumptions about what it is until you ask them. So is it wilderness <laughs> or yeah. is it your backyard or right. what, what does this mean? Um, so yeah. yeah. So I actually, I want to ask a little bit about um, where your research is headed, um, mm. what you might be working on right now. Are you sticking with the ocean? Are you headed somewhere new? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with the ocean. Uh, I am uh, currently working on a project thinking about the Beizaisen, so the cargo ships in the Tokugawa period and the coastal trade. And um, this is something which is still very uh, fuzzy. So I'm not sure exactly what it's gonna end up being as an argument, but it's definitely thinking about how are people living with, working on, thinking about the ocean space that they, that they very clearly were operating in, this coastal waters that I saw were very important in the, in the whaling groups. Um, you know, thinking about another group of people who are really solidly tied to these coastal waters. There was a huge booming coastal trade in this period. And it doesn't get talked about very much in sort of general histories. Um, you know, you hear about things like the Tokaido um, and the, the travel over land much more than you hear about travel on the water, sure. even though we know most of the rice was shipping by water whenever possible. They're not toting this stuff over the mountains <laughs> if they don't have to. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I've, I got interested in trying to understand what people thought of the sea um, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer that by looking at these sailors, but I do, I do want to get into that 
aspect of instead of saying that let's look at what they're pulling out of the ocean uh, more directly think about but how are they operating on the ocean um, what is that space to them what is the technology that allows them to be out there um, and so you know thinking about the ships gets at a different angle of this coastal space um, and hopefully fills in some stuff that are open questions from my earlier project um, but it's uh one of the things that got me really interested in this was thinking about the castaway narratives uh -huh. the Hyoryuki, yeah. um, because that's something that is sometimes filtered but still a, a sailor's voice that you don't often get in other spaces uh, and so thinking about what what else could we do with these to, to reconstruct that experience that people were having with the coastal waters and see you know what kind of people they were but also what kind of environment this was um mm. you know what what is the ocean to them uh it includes the ships that they're using so you know what is that environment but also you know how does that tie them into other things right so it's uh it's a fun project to work on but i really uh, i'm interested to see where it goes let's just say well i, I am too <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> i mean it actually the way you were just talking about it and thinking about you know the boat as the extension of the water i mean it, it actually brings to mind some some work that's being done in um, media studies and environmental mm -hmm. media studies right people like john durham peters uh who who write about the ocean there's this really wonderful uh book by melody jue that came out recently i don't know if you know this it's called no. um wild wild blue media and it's it's all about reading the sea as a medium and uh, it's really fascinating work. Um, so yeah, I really look forward to to seeing where where that goes. That that sounds great. But I have one last question, um, and this is something that uh, I ask everyone um, on this podcast for this season. If you feel comfortable answering, what's your own personal relationship to the ocean? Is it something you grew up with? Is it, you know, I'm just just curious about that. Yeah, I grew up on the ocean. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Um, I was on the water all summer. Um, we, we sailed up to Maine every summer. Um, you know, I just, I can't imagine what it's like not to be near the water. Um, even though now I live like five hours inland. <laughs> um, so it's, it, I can't imagine, but it just, you know, it's, it was such a formative experience, just knowing that this is, this is what you do with your time is you go out on the water and you go sailing. Um, and I definitely think that has completely shaped my interests and, and what kinds of things I think are, um, obvious, which other people don't. And, mm. and therefore, you know, I, I went to Japan the first time I went to Japan, it was to Hakodate mm. and I went down to the Harbor and there were just, there were no pleasure boats. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were like four docks right. and it's a huge city. And it just, it blew my mind because that's not at all my experience of, of the ocean. And so I do think that uh, that definitely has made a difference in why this is such an interest to me. Um, but I also, I, I do find it interesting when I ask my students, when I'm teaching marine environmental history, especially like, you know, what is your experience of the ocean? And, you know, the, the students who grew up in the Midwest who, never been to the ocean still are quite interested so it, i don't think it requires that you have that close lifelong connection or at least childhood long connection um but it definitely does leave its mark right right 
Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today and a fascinating conversation. And yeah, look forward to reading the rest of your work when it comes out. You're welcome. And it was great to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Bringing Whales Ashore, Oceans and the Environment of Early Modern Japan is available via University of Washington Press. My thanks again to Dr. Jacobina K. Arch for taking the time to speak with me. Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.